Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of the Life Church Canton podcast. This is exciting. My name is Jared Van Vorst and I'm your host for the show. I'm also one of the pastors at Life Church. And uh, I, I'm glad to be here for the 100th episode, although I've only been here for a handful. Uh, our good friend Sam Parham uh, was the visionary behind the podcast, and I've been uh, blessed enough to be able to take it on from here. So we really, really hope that you have been enjoying this content and that you've been learning a lot about who God is and about the community of faith and about Life Church and all different kinds of things. And I can't think of a better week or a better day to have our 100th episode than to have a sermon brought to you by Pastor Daniel. And we're right in the middle of a series called Sticking to the Gospel. And uh, I think you're really going to be challenged by this one. It's it's going to be challenging and hard and difficult and good and inspiring and all of those things in between. Uh, but also I want to invite you to consider prayerfully uh, giving to Life Church and the work that we get to be a part of uh, because it makes a difference in the lives of real people. And you can do that by going to the Give page, which is in our show notes. And, uh, and then also go ahead and share this podcast with others if you think it might be impactful to them. And subscribe if you haven't subscribed. Do all of that stuff uh, because we're going to hopefully do 100 more uh, podcasts from here on out. So without further ado, here is Pastor Daniel sticking to the gospel. Our foundational text this morning is Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. Lord, we come to you this morning, heavy burdened by life and all the circumstances in our society. And in times like these, God's people are asking, what does God have to say? And so we pray, Lord that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and reveal the will of God. And wherever you are, all God's people said, Amen. Well, I am excited to be with you as we continue today to unpack the gospel. We started a series called Sticking to the Gospel, a series that is designed to explain the gospel and to explore its implications for our lives. So far, we have explored the gospel, what it is, what we've been saved from, the power and the penalty of sin. We've explored who we've been saved to, that we have been brought into fellowship with God and with each other as one new man and one new body in Christ. We've explored what we've been saved for, Namely, that we have been saved for good works and that we've been empowered by God to live in such a way to glorify him in a world that doesn't know him. And last week, Pastor Nathan unpacked one of those good works, namely the good work of evangelism, 
that we have been called by God to share the gospel even in our most intimate relationship with our family, our friends, and even our coworkers. And next week, we will be talking about mercy. But today, we are speaking as we continue to unpack the gospel and explore yet another good work of the gospel of what God has saved us for and prepared us for, we are going to look at justice. Why the topic of justice, you may wonder? Because it seems that there is some debate in our society over what justice is or righteousness as it's called and whether or not it's part of the gospel. And lives are at stake, so we have to know what God's Word says. Folks, this is not a new debate. Christians have often disagreed on over what the role of the church should be in matters of justice and righteousness in our society. This is especially true of the American or the Western church. Perhaps not so true of the Latin or African churches or other churches that have wrestled with this longer. It's not even true about the history of the early church. In the first century, passages such as Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 show that the church was actively involved in advocating and providing for those who are needy and helpless. Now, to be sure, most Christians agree. We agree that social justice issues such as human trafficking, poverty, and even racial prejudice are important issues and the church should play some role in it. However, the disagreement seems to be about the proper relationship of those activities to the gospel or to the mission of the church. At the center of this long-standing debate is the question of whether social justice or social activism is a byproduct of the gospel or is it a fundamental core issue of the gospel. Some have even gone as far as say churches need to stick to the Bible or stick to the gospel. Friends, such statement assumes that the gospel or the Bible has nothing to say about justice and that the church has no mandate from God to be involved in or to pursue justice in our society. I have a question for you before we go further. Are we willing to be challenged by God's word? Are we willing to have our views on justice or any other issue for that matter be challenged by God? So what's the biblical answer to this dilemma? Well, in order to do that, we are going to perform what some refer to as systematic theology. Systematic theology is a branch of theology that aims to arrange biblical truth or biblical doctrine into one consistent and coherent whole. The aim of systematic theology is to discover, organize, and clarify a biblical teaching or doctrine. Systematic theology is concerned about what the entire Bible, and therefore God, has to say about a particular topic or subject. For instance, if you wanted to know what God is saying about marriage, you would apply systematic theology. You would survey and study every direct or indirect reference to marriage in the Bible. You would not ignore the original context of that verse, but you would pick all those verses, put them together, and the hope is that that will produce for you a robust or comprehensive view of what God has to say about marriage. 
or similarly as it comes to this big topic of justice and of righteousness, because those words are used interchangeably in the Bible, we're going to apply systematic theology. Now, if you're used to me preaching, you know that my preference is to stay in one text and to gut it out and squeeze it out as much as I can. But in order to get a comprehensive view of what God is saying, we have to do some systematic theology. Now, I want to warn you, or perhaps give you a heads up. We're going to be looking at quite a few verses of the Bible. My encouragement is don't get overwhelmed. Sit and let God's Word soak into your soul. Now, for your benefit, we're going to have all these verses online in the U version, so you can go back and do that for at least one reason, to keep me honest. Make sure I'm telling you what God's Word is saying. And secondly, it blesses your soul when you see what God has to say about anything. So, the big question, is justice part of the gospel? Well, one thing's for sure. The Bible has a lot to say about the topic of justice. Throughout the Bible, justice, God's perfect justice, or justice between husband and wife, or between people, the Bible speaks recurrently about this. These are connected themes in the Bible. In fact, I looked at probably over 200 verses, and the word justice and righteousness shows up 750 times in the entire Bible. And that doesn't even include verses that allude to the concept or the principle of justice. Otherwise, we might have thousands of passages, and I'd probably be dead before I get through that. Folks, given the sheer amount of references to justice in the Bible, I think it's safe to conclude that this is something we need to pay attention to. Because if something is repeated over 750 times, perhaps God is telling us something. It deserves our full attention. So how does the Bible define justice? How does the Bible define righteousness? Let's define some terms. Well, the Bible uses a few words for justice and righteousness. Particularly in the Old Testament, there are two main words that are used for justice. The first one, the least used word, and I use that tongue-in-cheek, it shows up 120 times. It's the word mishpat. Mishpat has the idea of impartial and unbiased decisions, unbiased actions. It means to judge by divine standards and not human preferences. Mishpat generally has to do with all aspects of justice, including the creation and implementation of just laws. Laws that do not treat one person or one people group better than the other. In fact, James calls this type of justice, this, this favoritism, this partial justice, as a sin against God. James chapter 2. Now, the second word that is used, and the most commonly used word in the Old Testament, is the word tzedek. Wait for it. It shows up 454 times. It means to do what is right, to seek the well-being of other people, to be charitable, to restore what has been taken or stolen or what is owed. It means to vindicate the oppressed, to pursue and apply equity not just equality. Notice what I said there. Two different words that we conflate in our society. Here's how I've heard it said before. Equality is giving everyone a pair of shoes. So we all got shoes. Amen, hallelujah. No feet stinking, no none of that. We got shoes. But equity is more concerned about giving everybody a pair of shoes that fit. 
See the difference there? One says, let's all have the same thing. The other one that says, what do you need in order for us to be truly equal? Now, in the New Testament, there's really one main word used for justice or for righteousness. There's a second one, but it only shows up two times, so I won't waste your time with that. But Dakia shows up 162 times in the New Testament. It means to be in accordance with the will and standard of God with the character of God, to be upright, just, righteous, to be honest and fair, to be in right relationship with God and with people. Interestingly enough, most of the occurrences of justice and righteousness in the Bible are almost always in the context of advocating and providing for the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the foreigner, the marginalized, those who have been discriminated against because of their ethnicity or because of their socioeconomic class. Don't take my word for it. Here are a few verses for you to consider. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Here God pronounces a curse not on ungodly people, but on his own people. Psalm 82, verse 2 and 5. How long will you hand out unjust decisions favoring the wicked? Give justice to the poor, to the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. Proverbs 31, perhaps one of my favorites. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those who are being crushed. Yes, speak for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. Are you tired yet? We got a few more. Perhaps the one that convicts me the most, Isaiah 15 or Isaiah 1 verse 15 and 17. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look at you. No matter how much you pray, I will not listen, says God. For your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves clean. Stop all this evil that I see you doing. Yes, stop doing evil. Learn to do right. See that justice is done. And how does he define justice? Help those who are oppressed. Give orphans their rights. Defend the widows. This passage assumes that everybody has rights. But what's even deeper? God says to his people, I will not answer your prayers if you allow injustice to be in the land. What if the prayer of the church has not been answered because we have been unjust? Jeremiah 7, 5 to 7. For if you truly make your ways and your deeds good, if you truly do justice between a man and his neighbor, you do not oppress the alien. Folks, that has implications for immigration. If you do not oppress the orphan and the widow and you do not shed innocent bloods in this place and you go after other gods to harm yourself, then I will let you dwell in this place, a land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Listen to what God is saying. He puts justice on par with murder and idolatry, two huge things in the Hebrew context that were worthy of death. 
And he says, I'm plucking you and booting you out of the land, the promised land that I gave you, because you have been unjust with your neighbor. Finally, Zechariah. Zechariah 7, 9 to 13. I know that's your favorite book in the Bible. God says to his people, you must see that justice is done. You must show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress, again, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners who live among you or anyone else in need. And do not plan ways of harming each other. And then he says, but my people stubbornly refuse to listen. They closed their minds and made their hearts hard as a rock. And because they would not listen to the teachings of the prophets, I became very angry. You know, God got angry, did you? Because they did not listen when I spoke. I did not listen when they prayed. Question for you. Did you know that God spoke this clearly and strongly about justice? Perhaps you're listening and you're not a Christian. Does it rock your world, surprise you that God speaks, that the Bible speaks about how we relate to each other? Does that not make you wonder how awesome this God is that is very invested in the relationships of his people, that he values life, even yours? Now, I know some may say, preacher man, that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. First, I would say to you, you clearly don't know how the Bible works together. And I want to meet with you over lunch or dinner at Starbucks and talk to you about how that works together. But this theme of justice and advocacy actually carries into the New Testament. In fact, Jesus explicitly states that liberation of the oppressed is at the core of his gospel and his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, when Jesus enters into the synagogue to declare his messianic arrival, that I am the Messiah, the long-awaited king of the Jews that is here to right all the wrongs, this is what Jesus says, the spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free all who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The year of Jubilee, the year of celebration, after seven years, everyone is released from all their debts. Whatever you owe, it doesn't matter if you could pay it or not. I know some of us who've been in bankruptcy are like, wish I had a year of Jubilee now. Jesus came to preach a gospel that releases people from their oppressions. Further in the New Testament, we see that Jesus spends the majority of his ministry with the rich, with the elite. No, with the marginalized, with the oppressed of his day. And on the rare occasion that he spent time with the elite, the religious, the so-called godly people, the Christians of his day, he was rebuking them for ignoring the matters of justice in their society. In Luke 11, Jesus says, woe or 
or sorrow awaits you. Woe in Hebrew means that you are discombobulated. You are broken at the seams, at the weight of what was said, and it makes you undone. It says, what sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you carefully tithe even the tiniest income of herbs. They were religious. Their religiosity surpasses anything that we could ever do. They would even tithe the smallest of seeds. But Jesus says, you ignore justice and love of God. Look what he did there. He puts justice and the loving of God on par. As if to say, if you love God, you will pursue justice. But if you don't pursue justice, your love for God is in question. James or even John pushes this motive a little longer when he says, how can you love God that you don't see, but your brother that you do see, you don't love. But look what Jesus says further. You should tithe. Yes, be religious. Do the worshipful things. Read your Bible. Do Bible study. Small groups. All those things are great. But you neglect the most important things. Wait a minute, Jesus. My worship is not as important as my care for human beings? We'll unpack that a little bit later. This theme of justice is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And wouldn't you know it, it carries on into eternity carries on to eternity, we see here in Isaiah 9, 7, in what is called the prediction of the future reign of Christ, the coming final reign of Jesus when he comes to right all wrongs. Look at what it said of God's kingdom. His dominion will grow continually and there and peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it, you guessed it, with justice and righteousness forever. In fact, in other passages of the Bible, it says the foundation of God's kingdom is justice. Then it goes further, and if you sneeze, you'll miss it. It says the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Folks, let me tell you what's happening here. Whenever you see the Lord of hosts in your Bible, it is meant to evoke awe. It is the Hebrew compound word, Yahweh Savaoth. It is meant to show you that God is in a raid in all of his military attire, standing on the clouds, ready with all the angels to judge the earth. Let the weight of that sit on our soul. And God feels so strongly about justice that he brings the weight of his kingdom to bear on injustice. Justice and righteousness are eternal themes and principles because justice and righteousness are at the core of the nature of God. And God is unchanging. This is what we theologians call the immutability of God. He doesn't change. You and I ebb and flow. We pick and choose who we are just to. We pick and choose who we like, who we care about. We pick and choose who gets to experience the best parts of us. Not so with God. Not so with a God who doesn't change, who doesn't ebb and flow, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The gospel is the good news that a just God has justified humans who have been unjust with him and unjust with each other. 
And how does he do this? He does this. He justifies us through Christ, who is our sacrificial lamb, whose sacrificial life and death fulfilled God's justice. And then because of that, those who put their faith in him can now experience the justice or the righteousness of God and then stand before a holy God justified. But the gospel is even deeper than that. The gospel is not just about you being saved. As Pastor Jared said last week or the week, two weeks ago, the gospel is not merely a get out of jail or get out of hell free card. That's part of it. The gospel is not just about my salvation or your salvation. If it was, then there would be no reason for God to keep us on earth. If the gospel was just about you being saved, then the Lord would have called us home right after being saved. Amen. Hallelujah. You got saved. Go home. Why would you keep godly people in an ungodly world? It makes no sense unless you have a deeper purpose in mind. The Bible reveals God's deeper purpose in the gospel and for his people. Passages such as Genesis chapter 3, Romans 8, 2 Peter 3, and many, many other passages point towards this final restoration of what we lost in the Garden of Eden. And what did we lose in the garden? Intimacy with God continual fellowship with God, koinonia and communion with God. The loss of fellowship led to the destruction and distortion and damage of the image of God, the imago Dei. Genesis 1:27. our foundation of verse says, God made man in his image to be his unique reflection in this world. Humans in sinning against God fell out of fellowship and so began the distortion of the image of God. And since then, with every passing generation, we have been walking further and further and further away from God. With every passing generation, we've been moving further and further and further away from that image. But make no mistake, however marred and distorted that image is, all human beings have been endowed by God with indisputable and inalienable dignity and worth. The Constitution got that part right, but applied it partially. Therefore, all human life is sacred and priceless to God, having been founded in the very essence of who God is. Our essence is rooted in the image of God. In fact, further in Genesis, God reminds Noah, after the fall, after the flood, after the sin of the garden, in Genesis 9, 6, God says, I will require blood of anyone who takes another human's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, die, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human being must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person will also be taken by human hands. Why, God? For God made human beings in his own image. So then, the conclusion of that statement is any harm or cruelty against another human being is sin against 
God. This is why David can say it categorically and emphatically in Psalm 51 after he murdered the husband of the woman he raped. Yeah, soap operas have nothing on the Bible. He rapes a woman, murders her husband to cover it up. But then he pens 51, Psalm 51, and says, God, only against you have I sinned. Why would David say that? The imago Uriah was made in the image of God, and so snuffing out his life is an attack against the very God who made him. So then cruelty and the oppression that we see in our world, that we experience in our world, is a result of the fall of mankind and the simultaneous distortion and disregard for the image of God in each other. Question for you. Do you see all people as being made in the image of God, even the people you don't like, even the people who don't see you in the image of God. You see, folks, it's easy to justify oppressive and cruel acts against people, against a group of people or against an individual person when you don't regard them as an image bearer of God. It's easy to harm people, to look past people when you don't realize that they have made or in your mind you've categorized them as less than the image of God. Or you forget that you and I will stand before a just God one day and give an account for how we have distorted and denigrated the image of God in us and in other people. Folks, the weight of this biblical truth that all humans were made in the image of God should have stopped the Holocaust, should have stopped the murders of millions of Jews. The weight of this biblical truth should have stopped slavery and the murder of Africans, tens and millions of them. The weight of this biblical truth should stop us now from our prejudices and our injustices against each other assuming and thinking the worst about each other. The weight of this truth should stop us now from mistreating each other, from seeing each other as enemies on two sides of the spectrum rather than image bearers of God, imbued with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. The weight of this truth should stop us now from ignoring the pains and the sufferings of other human beings who have been made in the image of God. The church, more than any other entity on earth, is positioned and empowered to understand and pursue justice. This is her mission to declare the justice of God in an unjust world. God is redeeming the Imago Dei, which was distorted and damaged in the garden. And this is referred to as the mission of God, the Missio Dei. God has always been missional. He's always been on mission to fully redeem and restore his image in you and I. In fact, God's desire to to redeem this image is seen in the very first book of the Bible, right after Adam and Eve sinned. What happened? God came down to seek them out. He came down to cover their shame and to curtail their sin. God's always been in the missional business. 
It's seen in the giving of the law, the Torah, where God gives the law to show the justice of God over and, 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 and against the justice or injustice of man and see that we need God's justice. The law was never meant to save. The law was meant to show us how unjust we are and seek for a just God. Finally, it is fully seen. The missio day, the mission of God is fully seen in the sending of his son to die on the cross, to pay our sin debt, to redeem and restore that image of God in all of us. And folks, Christ has empowered and sent his church to that end, to restore the image of God in all people. Passages such as Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3, and many other scriptures push this truth to the forefront. And they give us a glimpse into the grand finale of God's gospel message and gospel mission, namely that God is redeeming a people and remaking them in his image. In Colossians 3.10, we see this. And Paul says, put on the new self. This is the new being which God, its creator, is constantly renewing in his image in order to bring to a full knowledge of himself. God is redeeming us in order for us to know him and redeem what we lost in the garden, perfect, undisturbed intimacy with the maker of our souls. In Ephesians 4.24, it says, be constantly renewed in the spirit of your mind. What does that mean? That means having a fresh mental and spiritual attitude. And put on the new nature, the regenerate self. Regenerate means new birth, to be born again, to have a new origin in Christ, which is created in the image of God. It's godlike. And wouldn't you know it, here's our word justice again, just showing up all through the Bible. And what's the characteristic of this new nature in God? Righteousness and holiness. Together, this means a justice that's out of this world, a separate God kind of justice. The gospel, folks, starts and ends with the image of God and therefore starts and ends with justice. The corruption of the image of God is what necessitated the gospel. And the restoration of the image of God in all people is the goal of the gospel. Notice how the word justice continues to reoccur when we're talking about the Old Testament, the New Testament, and even the future of God's people and the very purpose of the gospel. I think this is meant to remind us that the very image of God is marked by the presence and the pursuit of justice. This is God's mission, God's plan to redeem us from a corrupted image of himself. In other words, the missio day, the mission of God, is in order to restore the imago day, the image of God. The mission of God is the restoration and redemption of his image in us. So if this is the mission of the Lord who saved us, how could it not be the mission of his church? The mission of God is therefore the mission of the church. The church more than any other body can understand that any act of injustice against a human being is an act of injustice against God. Therefore, God has called us to be the type of people 
that will proclaim the image, the redemption of the image of God in all people, and by so doing, proclaim and pursue justice for all people. In fact, in one of the hard sayings of Jesus, perhaps the hardest that I read throughout this study, we see that not only is the kingdom of Jesus marked by justice and righteousness, but Jesus even declares that social justice, the care and concern for the oppressed and the marginalized, is a major characteristic of those who will be in eternal life. And that there is eternal consequences for ignoring the oppressed now. In Matthew 25, 41 to 46. Jesus uses a parable to teach this truth. He says, then he, God, will say to those on the left, away from me, you who are under God's curse, away to eternal fire, which was prepared for the devil and all his angels. Whoa. He goes further. Why, Jesus? For I was hungry, but you did not feed me. I was thirsty, but you did not give me drink. I was a stranger, but you did not welcome me into your homes. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, but you did not take care of me. Then the so-called people of God will answer. And their answer would be, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry, thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and we did not help you? When did this happen, Lord? We didn't see you. Listen to the remark of God. Then the king will answer, I tell you, whenever you refuse to help one of the least important ones, least important is not in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of society, those that society say are worthless. He says, whenever you refuse to help these ones, then you refuse to help me. I wish it stopped there, but listen to what he said. Then these will be sent into eternal punishment. And here's our word justice again. Then the just or the righteous will go into eternal life. That's a hard passage to digest. That passage convicts me to my soul. Here's what I want you to also know about this passage. It's not saying you're incapable, like you don't have the funds to help. That's not the conviction here. The conviction is that you have the ability to speak up. You have the ability to help someone. You have the ability to care for someone, but you turn your back on them. And Jesus takes that personally. Jesus sees injustice as a personal attack against himself and worthy of eternal punishment. Why, Lord? Because mankind was made in the image of God. Righteousness and justice continues to pepper throughout scripture. If Jesus takes injustice this seriously and personally, how could the church, his body, see injustice as anything other than an attack against Christ and against us? Or perhaps I could say that in a more positive way. How could the church be passive about injustice when our Lord feels this strongly about injustice? Folks, based on the Bible, it is my firm conviction that justice, social or otherwise, is at the very core of the gospel. 
because it's at the very core of who God is. And even more importantly, this is the mission of the church. Justice is a main characteristics or attribute of God, and such it should be our characteristics. We are called over and over in the Scripture to imitate Christ, to be like God, to have the same moral characteristics as God. In summary, the failure of the church to participate in or pursue justice in our society as defined by God that's important, is an attack against the character and the image of God, and it undermines the very mission of the church as revealed in the Bible and in the gospel. So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage all of us to follow Christ by sticking to the gospel. Here are some action steps to help us stick to the gospel. I know that was a weighty message. Promise you it was weighty as I read through it. I want to encourage you first to look up all the references of justice in the Bible and learn God's heart for justice. Keep the preacher honest. There's free concordances online that can help you sift through the words righteousness and justice, and you can do everything. In fact, I am willing to show you how I study. Secondly, I want to encourage you to think deeply about how you can participate in justice. Justice is not an issue just about society. It's also in our marriages. Am I just to my wife? Are you just to your husband, your children? Do you treat them with equity? Does one child get more of your love than the other? Do you forget that your children, your husband, your friends, your family are made in the image of God? Think deeply about how we speak to each other. I believe those references that you find in the concordance will be a good source. And secondly, I think you could visit the justice page on the church and you'll see all kinds of great resources that can help you. And finally, I want to encourage you to encourage other people to do the same. Now, maybe you're here and you don't know God and you're listening wherever you are. You don't know Christ. But you are surprised to hear that God values humanity this much, values all of his creation this much. In Genesis, he says, when he created the heavens and the earth, he says, good, 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 good. And when he gets to man, he says, very good. Tov mahod, it is good to the muchness of it. I am satisfied in mankind. If you're here and you don't know God, let me tell you something. Not only does he value all of humanity, he values you that much. He values you so much that he didn't send someone else, he sent himself. You will never know a love like God because God's the one that knows all your works and all and still loved you. The Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It doesn't mean you're tight or special. It means God has made you special, that he has endowed you, imbued you with dignity and worth. Let nobody tell you any different. Come to him now, and you can know that. And you may pray like this, Lord, the preacher man said that you have made me in your image. I want to know the beauty of that image. 
more than ever, I want to know the beauty of the God who made the heavens with his hands and made me with those same hands. And maybe you're a believer and you've wrestled with this issue of justice. I don't care where you are. I love you because you are made in God's image, but I want to encourage you, don't wrestle with God, but wrestle with your flesh. Ask why this is a stumbling block for you or for me. Even more personally, I'm asking myself, how have I been unjust to anyone in my circle? Justice is at the core of the gospel because justice is at the core of who God is. The Imago Dei is being redeemed through the Missio Dei, the mission of God in his church. Father, we thank you for this moment and we pray that you would keep us and that your word will cause us to find joy in you and know that you have done a great work in saving us and in re-saving us and redeeming your image in us. In God's name we pray.